Welcome to the NatMatSci podcast, brought to you by the National Mathematics and Science College. This is the podcast to let you find out more about NatMatSci by hearing from staff and students talking about their experiences, all unscripted and unplugged, so that you can hear what life is really like at the college. Today, we're talking physics with Kieran Lambert. Kieran's going to explain how he got into teaching, what it is about physics that excites him so much, We discussed the relationship between ethics and physics, and we also asked him a fun question about the moon versus Mars. But for now, come with me as we step into a conversation with Kieran Lambert. Kieran, welcome to the NatMatSci podcast, and thank you for being here. How are you today? Thank you very much, Simon. It's great to be on. Um, I'm very well today, thank you very much. Um, We're recording from my house um, rather than from college today. I've just been doing some planning work for the new academic year and our extracurricular programme, which hopefully by the time this goes out will have been rolled out to students um, in the evenings. So I'd love to understand a little bit more about your background and uh, find out really how you got into teaching. But first of all, I wonder whether you can just talk us through a little bit about your own education. So, you know, where you went to school and what your own experience of education was like. Sure, yeah. So I'm originally from a city called Leicester, which, if you are not in the UK, it's only about um, half an hour's drive away from Coventry, where the college is. I went to an independent school, and as as your listeners may be able to guess, uh, studied mostly sciences and maths, Mm -hmm. Uh, but not exclusively. Um, I've always been interested in philosophy, I suppose, as well. So when I was choosing my A-levels, I did the standard, I suppose, maths and chemistry and physics choices for a physicist, um, and then chose to do a philosophy A-level instead of uh, further maths, which it turns out was probably not the, not the, uh, the thing that would have been most useful for my, uh, my future. I think further maths would have been much, much more handy for the way things turned out. So I completed my, my A-levels and went off to university in Durham, which is in the north of England. And I started off doing a, a degree in pure physics but then whilst I was there I met the um, the lady who I would end up marrying who was doing philosophy and theology and through her um, got interested in the discussion side of, of things talking about ethics and so on as well so I actually switched onto a natural sciences degree by the end and ended up doing um, eventually what's called a joint honours degree uh, between physics and philosophy which matched both of my interests at the time Obviously, um, it's the, the physics teaching that I've then go on, gone on to specialise in. But something I've really enjoyed doing during teaching is exploring other aspects of life with students as well. So the Philosophy Society that we ran for the first time this year with a couple of um, interested students um, has been really enjoyable for me. I, I like chatting and just exploring these issues as well as science. Excellent. Now, you mentioned Durham University and some of the people listening to this podcast episode might be current students at the college and they might be thinking about where to go Mm. when they leave, where to go to university. Would you recommend Durham being a good place to go? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, at the time, as you as you do when you're a 17, 18 year old, you, you set a lot of stock by league table positions and things like that. And within the UK, Durham's consistently been one of the the top Um, top tranche I suppose of universities especially for science Um, as well as that though I just thought it was a lovely place when I went up to visit for the first time as a sixth former it's a a beautiful very small city Um, it's dominated by this old cathedral and castle so it's got lots of old stone architecture 
and surrounded by beautiful countryside. It was a, a lovely place to spend three years, and I would very much recommend it, as well as being an excellent university. At the time when I was making that decision, it was the choice that a lot of our students face, choosing between um, excellent universities in London and in the large cities in Manchester and going somewhere that perhaps is a little bit more out in the sticks but has got its own advantages. So I, I was clear from quite early on that I didn't want to live in London and therefore, even though Imperial, for example, and UCL were excellent universities for the sorts of courses that I was applying for, I was quite clear it wasn't the place for me. When I'm, it's funny, when I'm talking to current students about these sorts of issues and we're going through where they might want to go off to study, they have all the same sorts of decisions to make that I did at that time. And I'm often surprised how few students will apply to a university without actually visiting it for the first time. And then a couple of, couple of times they've said to me, well, I applied to the college without ever visiting it first, and that's worked out fine. So maybe, maybe I've got the wrong idea. And you can, uh, you can uh, take, take a pot shot at these things, go off, go off recommendations to a greater extent than I did. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you know, the standard process does seem to be to go and visit universities, but but that doesn't mean that that, that always has to be the case. And uh, clearly with the college, as you say, a lot of the students do join there without having visited. OK, so I wonder then if you can talk to us a little bit about teaching and how you got into teaching and, and why you went into teaching. Sure. So I was I'll, I'll go back to university. So I was going through my uh, degree course, as one does. And as with most students, didn't have any money and first saw an advert for someone who was, it was a parent actually, was looking for a tutor for their sixth form child. Um, so I met up with this student and did a, a series of sessions for them in the, in the cafe of the university library, just taking them through A-level physics and A-level maths. And I really enjoyed that. It was not something that I'd ever thought of before that time, but the process of w working through this student's course and helping them out with their homework and things like that, I got a lot of uh, joy out of. So f fast forward to towards the end of my studies and everyone, all the students are thinking about what they want to do next. Um, I found I couldn't get excited at the careers fairs at the idea of being a, an actuary for an insurance firm or a, you know going and working for a bank, which a lot of physics students did, those who didn't want to carry on into research. Um, and initially it was, it, it was a matter of having a go and seeing if I enjoyed it in a class as much as I did one-on-one -on -one with students. So I signed up to a, a PGCE, which is the, the postgraduate um, teaching qualification that you do. Um, after I finished my um, undergraduate degree. Um, and to, to be perfectly honest, it didn't start well. The Something I, I didn't quite realise at the time was that when you're teaching to be, when you're learning to be a science teacher, you don't just pick one science initially. You're, you're given this broader qualification in science teaching. And so my, my first teaching placement was in a, a school which didn't actually have a physics department. They didn't, they didn't teach the subject at A-level at all. And at lower years, it was all combined science. So my, my first experience in the classroom was being given a whole series of lessons on lower years biology and lower years chemistry to do. And it's no offence to my colleagues at all in those departments who enjoy what they do very much, but it became clear to me quite quickly that there was something I preferred and so I was uh, lucky enough to be able to uh, go to the, the course manager and ask for my second teaching placement. Could they please find me somewhere that actually had A-level physics? Because this is what I'd had in mind for myself. And yes, they, they kind of pulled some strings and found a school for me that fitted better. And 
since then I've I've loved every second of what I've done. It's been fantastic. So I moved to a, a grammar school, which is um, a state-run but selective school in the north of the UK. It was my first role, and at that point started teaching A level properly and had a whole load of classes through and found obviously I enjoyed being with students and spending time with them but also I enjoyed learning things and you would imagine that starting off being a teacher straight after finishing your degree course you would know everything that was important straight away but that's not what I found at all I discovered that you know these 16 17 year old students particularly would ask questions that really made me think and there were things that I thought I'd understood all the way going through. Um, but then when someone asks you a question in a certain way, like, why is this happening in this diffraction experiment? You sort of scratch your head and go, hmm, I'm not really sure. Um, and, and then go away and come, you know, come up with a properly thought through answer and come back to them. So from, from that first year, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the, the questions that our students come up with and being able to, to keep thinking and keep learning with like-minded young people. Uh, whilst teaching. So let's think for a moment then about physics at a very sort of fundamental level because clearly you're, you're working in physics and you've studied physics mm. but what is it about physics full stop that excites you the way that it does? I think there's, there's a, a beauty and an elegance in being able to approach any situation and apply this, this system of rules to work out what will happen and Obviously, when you start applying that, you're into engineering. But the the process of discovering how it is that the world really works and coming up with this fundamental set of principles for what's going on around us, and I think is is a wonderful process. And I, I find it fascinating for its own sake. When you then start applying it, you can then go into okay. So why does chemistry work the way it does, and therefore why do uh, molecular structures work as they do why does biology cell, cell structures work the way it does if you trace back all of this comes back to a set of fairly simple rules you know we, we currently think that there are only five forces but it depends how you count really that govern all of interactions in science and physics i think of as being just the the, the quest for certainty and what are, what are the basic explanations that describe what's going on so i've always found that fascinating in terms of a, a particular interest within physics, um, I was always most interested in astrophysics. Um, I know it's, I suppose it's quite common really. A lot of people when they're growing up like space and um, all aspects of it. We're very lucky nowadays to be in a period of very rapid growth and there's all sorts of new developments happening. You know, trips are going on, um, landing robots on Mars. That was on the, the news just a few days ago that they've been collecting new soil samples and things. It's very exciting. But I was, I was interested in that from a very early age and remain so. And that may be something to do with why our pre-A course has got so much astrophysics in it. I couldn't possibly comment. Quite possibly right. Um, now, you mentioned that there are only five forces. You said it depends how you count. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Sure. Yeah. So one of the, the ongoing themes in physics is the idea that if you group different phenomena together and come up with an explanation or a, a theory, I suppose, or a set of equations that describes more than one thing, that's progress, that's a more elegant theory. And throughout the history of, the, of sciences in general, there has been this ongoing process of trying to simplify things. So the easiest example for that is 
um, electricity and magnetism. Now, for a, a lot of history, these were thought to be separate phenomena, and a lot of the time we treat them as separate. You know, you don't often think about magnetic effects if you're building a simple circuit. But electricity and magnetism really are the same effect. You're just viewing them in slightly different ways. So one can cause, each one can cause the other. And of course, that's how um, uh, light moves. This is something we learn about towards the end of the year one course, is how you can combine these two forces to create effectively a photon which moves itself through space. So we think, uh, we as the physics community, are pretty sure that we're not done with that process yet. We, we hope that we're not done with that process yet. And that the current set of um, forces and particles that we've got at the moment, what's called the standard model, is very much a work in progress. So this is always quite a, an interesting topic to teach because we go through with our students, okay, this is the list of the, the quarks and the leptons and things and the forces that affect them. My personal hope is that the list of particles and forces we've got at the moment isn't actually the final correct list mm -hmm. and it's something that we will continue to combine and make into a slightly more elegant whole as science progresses over the coming decades, I suppose. Mm. Um, mm. The eventual hope of a lot of physicists is to come up with something called a grand unified theory, which would most basically would involve combining many of the forces together to get one single set of equations that describe everything. The reality of how you do that is mathematically very complicated, as you can imagine, and it's not something that anyone's managed yet. But all the way back since Einstein, it's been an idea that physicists have had, uh, particularly how you can combine gravity with quantum mechanics, with the study of very tiny things. Because um, mm -hmm. at the moment, those two theories are very separate. They don't quite meet in the middle yet. You can't see how our current theories of gravity can explain tiny particles like electrons and how they behave, or vice versa. I see. Right. And then you mentioned earlier about ethics when you're at university. So um, when you look at things like the amount of money that the, 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 the American Space Agency spends on, on things that happen outside of our planet and ethics, is there a conversation that, that needs to be had there, in your opinion? Or do you think that, that the money that is spent is all for the, the greater good of mankind and therefore is fully justified? That's a great question. And there's certainly, there's certainly a conversation to be had, absolutely. Where one draws the line between these things will depend on individual circumstance. But would I say that if you had a piece of scientific research and you knew before you did it that this thing would have no real-world applications at all, imagine something that you could discover that would teach you the truth behind the, some, some aspect of the world, um, but you know already that it will be completely useless... I would suggest that that knowledge would have value in itself, even if you knew it wasn't going to be used to create you know, a faster internet or a new medicine or anything like that. It would still be valuable knowledge for itself and therefore worth pursuing. Of course, the reality of it is that you don't know what you'll discover until you look. And therefore, a lot of the, a lot of the money, the R&D development that goes into research around space, it has commercial outcomes which aren't always predicted ahead of time people don't see what's going to be discovered until they've discovered it so examples might include new materials that people haven't predicted will be invented um, but there were there are off, offshoots of this other research which goes on um, which might not be directly related at all um, but would turn out to be tremendously useful and historically people have been quite bad at predicting what will be useful and what won't in terms of blue skies research so I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate the, the point of the question. Obviously, in a world where 
there's a huge demand for directed research that has a definite outcome. I can appreciate that if I was the person arguing for research funding um, and going to, you know, for example, going to a government and saying, I need all this money just to build a rocket, just so that we've been there, that would probably be a difficult job. Um, but I'd like to think I could, I could, you could convince that person that there will be outcomes of this um, which are useful, even if you don't know what they will be yet. I see. OK, so if I can ask you then, what exciting developments are there in the world of physics that do have real world applications? I'm thinking about things like uh, graphene and how that can help change things in the future in a number of different ways. But what, what else is happening right now in, in the world of physics? So you asked about graphene. And I think that's a brilliant example of how research, which originally is just a discovery for its own merit, turns out to be useful in a whole load of different ways. So, for example, if we're talking about applications of physics, let's, let's talk about battery technology. At the moment, as, as we record this, there's a, a discussion going on about the uptake of electric cars in the UK, which obviously has got an input, um, um, a result on CO2 emissions, but also it's going to affect the amount of electricity that people use from the grid and cause all sorts of other effects. So graphene and its use in the next generation of batteries, be that in cars or in laptops or phones or whatever, is an example of something that's being developed from an engineering side of things. In terms of pure physics, and the simple answer is that there's loads going on. The, the first thing that comes to my mind, I guess, is in terms of my own interest, is it's only been a couple of years since the very first discovery of the gravitational wave as a, an observed phenomenon. Now, I'm sure your listeners know what I mean by a, a wave in general, just like a, a ripple or something in a water, mm. in water. But the idea that gravity could pass through space as a wave was something that was predicted by general relativity nearly 100 years ago. And it's not something that was observed in nature until very recently. The idea here is that when you have um, a mass it curves space around that mass in a distinctive way. And therefore, if you have a sudden change in the amount of mass that's present in a place, you end up with a ripple effect passing through space as that curvature changes. So what's been observed is uh, collisions and mergers between different black holes, which cause a ripple, uh, a wave, to pass through space. And we can detect this on the other side of the universe. Now, as a, an observation, just in its own merit, I thought this was fantastically fascinating that this prediction that was made such, so long ago could finally be observed in nature. But it gives us, now that we know they exist and we can detect them, a whole new way of measuring the universe. Now that you know that there are such things as gravitational waves and you, can, you know how to pick them up, you can design new types of detectors which will allow you to look all the way across space in a completely different way. So until now keep talking about astrophysics it's been um, a matter of using different wavelengths of light to look at different things so your listeners probably know that objects that are different temperatures give off different types of radiation hmm. as well as that different objects absorb different types of radiation so if you want to look at a certain type of star behind a certain type of gas cloud for example you could only do that with certain wavelengths Gravitational waves completely revolutionise that because suddenly you've got this new type of oscillation that can pass through anything. And therefore, in theory, you can observe anything. And all sorts of different movements are causing these little ripple effects. Now, the difficulty of this is that the ripples themselves are unimaginably tiny and very, very faint and weak. So it's only the very biggest of events that we can actually detect at the moment. But as, um, as a development in terms of fundamental physics... 
proving that these things exist and then going through the process of thinking, right, OK, how can we now use these to observe new types of phenomena? And we'll presumably learn all sorts of things that we have no idea about yet because we simply haven't been able to make the right sorts of observations. And I think that's really exciting. Gosh, when you put it like that, it really does sound like that. That really is quite incredible. Kieran, I've got a quick question for you now. If you had the choice to visit, and uh, uh, forgive the shallowness of this question, but if you had the choice to visit either the moon or Mars, which would you choose? Ooh. Um, I would be very happy with either. I won't lie to you. Uh, in fact, it's, it's been one of my repeating themes when students, if they ever ask me, why did you become a teacher? Part of the honest answer is, well... If, we, um, if I train up enough young physicists, then lots of you will go off and become engineers, and that makes it more and more likely that <laughs> by the time I'm retired, um, these things will become possible. I think I would love to go to Mars, is my answer. Uh, I love the idea of seeing Olympus Mons, um, although you could barely see it from ground level, to be honest, because it's so huge. It just appears as a, a gentle slope, I think. Um, but just conceptually, I think, I think it's a more interesting place um, than the moon would be. And huge amounts to see. I'd love to go pick up a rock and bring it back with me to have. Mm. That'd be mm. fantastic. And then if you had the choice then between Mars or one of the moons of Saturn or Jupiter, mm-hmm. possibly one of those that might harbour life as well, then which would you choose then? Oh, OK. Well, oh, OK. Well, if you're talking moons and bringing those into the equation, favourite ones to choose might be Enceladus, um, which has got a very thick icy crust over the outside but we think it's got a a, a liquid ocean deep underneath it i would be very very hesitant to go there because i think if you if you start landing any person on it people come with all sorts of microbes and things um as unnecessary but um, unremovable baggage Mm. and if you've got any sort of environment where potentially there's liquid water and heat and potentially something could live if you introduced it there I think in terms of coming back to our ethics discussion earlier, I think I'm, I'm not sure if I'd be able to live with myself if I was the person that first contaminated a pristine environment. Mars is much safer, of course, because nothing can live there anyway. Um, but when, when we do reach the technological point of being able to drop rovers on the surface of some of these interesting moons um, and going exploring the, the volcanic environments underneath their surfaces and things, it's an ongoing discussion that you need to be very, very careful about doing so. So I, I wouldn't want to be the first one, just in case I got the blame for anything that got dropped off on the surface by accident. Sounds like a perfect answer and a very scientifically clear answer as well there. Kieran, we need to bring this episode to a close in a minute. If anyone's heard anything and might want to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they should reach out? I am always on my college email address is the easiest way. Um, is, is it OK if I just give that to the listeners? Of course, yeah. Um, so my college email address is k.lambert, that's L-A-M-B-E-R-T, at natmathsci.ac.uk. Well, once students join us, they register on Microsoft Teams and we can um, be on and off chat a lot more easily. But college email is definitely the right way. And if you've got any questions about physics at the college that you'd like to talk about, please do feel free to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Perfect. That's great. Well, look, Kieran, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here today and opening up the world of physics at the college through your eyes. I really appreciate your time and appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to be on. 
So that was Kieran Lambert talking all things physics at the college. Thank you, Kieran, for coming on to this episode of the podcast. Elon Musk will be delighted you chose Mars over the moon. He's got his eye on both, of course, but Mars is arguably his favourite. If you have any questions, then do please email Kieran on k.lambert at natmatsai.ac.uk and he will be happy to help you. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you get future notifications. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.